read verses 1 through 14. And then in chapter 2, verse 23 through 25. Chapter 1, 1 through 14, and then chapter 2, 23 through 25. Let's all stand in respect to the reading of God's word. Give our attention then to the reading of God's word. Exodus 1, these are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his household, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, Benjamin, Dan, Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. All the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. Joseph was already in Egypt. Then Joseph died and all his brothers and all that generation. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply and if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore, they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh store cities, Pithom and Ramses. But the more they were opposed, the more they multiplied and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and in all kinds of work in the field. In all their, in all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. Chapter 2, verse 23. During those many days, the king of Egypt died. And the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God. And God heard their groaning. And God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. May God give us understanding as we rehearse this book that we've been going through in morning service, the book of Exodus. Let's pause for a word of prayer. And as we pray, after prayer, our choir will come with special music and then the preaching of God's word. Please bow your heads with me in prayer. We thank you, Father, for allowing us to come here today to be a part of our fellowship together, a part of hearing from your word and being challenged in your word to hear from you. We pray that you speak to us today from your word. We pray, Lord, that we'd open our hearts and you'd give us understanding. You would challenge and encourage us in living obediently to you. We thank you for uh, seeing the video of Sister Bonnie, and we thank you for the ministry that she and her husband Bill have done and are continuing to do in truth seekers. We pray that you bring blessing. 
We pray, Lord, that you would put it on the hearts of your people to work in that ministry so that our children hear and are taught your word and that they can grow up to be those who love you, who live for you and give their lives as a testimony to you. We pray for others who have been uh, away or challenged with different uh, physical ailments. We pray, Lord, that you just be with your people, encourage, build, strengthen, and most of all, keep them living for you and bringing glory to you, whether in sickness or in health. They might be faithful to you, serving you, loving you, living for you, being a light for you. We thank you for each person here now. We pray that you would speak to the hearts of your people. Draw them to yourself. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. We have completed our study through Exodus, and today I'd like to take a moment to look at lessons or messages to God's people from this book. So what I'd like you to do is think through the entire 40 chapters of Exodus. What would God have us to get out of that? What would he have us to learn? How do we take that in and digest it, and how do we live that out? So what I have is... is uh, ten points that I'd like to make about God's message through Exodus to his people today. Ten points about the message of Exodus to us today. Now, some of those points are very related and connected, and so I could summarize into fewer points than that, but uh, I'm going to look at ten. First one is God has not forsaken or abandoned his people. Exodus teaches us that. We see that they, the Jacob, um, excuse me, not Jacob, um, Joseph has gone down into Egypt and he's remained there and he has brought all of his family there. It started out with 70 individuals and then after he, they come down there because of the famine and they stay there. And as they began to grow in Egypt, um, they come under bondage in Egypt. And they remain there for a number of years. I think it's over 400 years that they actually stay there from the time that they're there till God brings them out. Um, but you can get the sense that does God understand? Does God know what's going on? Has God left his people? Does he still have a plan for them? Is he working that plan out? Um, I think in our own lives, we can relate to that sometimes. Sometimes we go through those phases where we wonder, what is God doing? Uh, we go through challenges in our life. As I look at the video today and see Sister Bonnie on the videos, just, just it's so refreshing to see her, but she wishes she could be here today. And yes, she has a few more weeks uh, more to stay uh, in, under the care that she's at. And you might ask that question, Lord, why? Why am I going through this phase in my life? Have you abandoned me? Have you forgotten about me? 
Should I still be praying? Are you even listening to my prayer? Are you answering my prayer? Why have you left me in the situation that I'm in? And so God's people often have that question. And his people back then uh, uh, had that question then, but the answer comes out, God has not forsaken his people. He hasn't forgotten about his people, and he has not abandoned his people. In fact, the second point is that God understands and empathizes with the sufferings and hardships of his people. I'll say it again. God understands and empathizes with the sufferings and hardships of his people. We see that. I want to look at chapter 2. We read that this morning. Chapter 2, verse 23. It says, During those many days the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God. And God heard their groaning. And God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. In other words, God God felt what they were going through. He understood. He empathized with the sufferings, with the struggles that they were experiencing. I can say that today, that God understands and empathizes with what you are going through. And we can say, how can a God... That, that is so unlike us in his holiness, and we are not holy, in his, he is spirit, and we are physical beings that have a spirit within us, and we, we endure different things. How can God relate to and understand that? Well, he sent his own son to be a human being for the very point of being like one of us, relating to us, and understand even our suffering, even our pain, our physical anguish that we go through. When you get up in the morning, if you're getting old like me, you wake up and you stretch and you feel some bones crackling and and different things going on and you can't reach and extend like you used to or you feel it now when you do uh, before you didn't feel that at all. You're going through these changes. God became a man so that he might understand some of the daily stuff that we go through. He empathizes with his people. It says in this verse that he heard their groaning. Groaning here is used to express the intense agony that sometimes can't be put into words, and all we can do is moan and groan. Uh, This is a different groaning that happened. There was another time when Israel would grumble about their situation. Here they're groaning. They're simply expressing the agony of this kind of life. You know, people ask me, you know, how's life treating you? Life is treating me terribly. But God is good. There's a lot of stuff that goes on in life that just isn't pleasant that we have to endure. God understands. He feels that. And he's reaching out to us. And, and this book of Exodus communicates that. He, it seems like a long time that many generations that they've been there in Egypt. But God understands and relates and connects and responds to the groaning of his people. Third point. God will save and deliver his people. This is a strong message all throughout Exodus. The word Exodus means, in other words, to exit. 
God is going to bring them out of Egypt. Egypt is a picture of bondage, suffering, slavery. God is going to bring his people out of that bondage. That We are to relate to that in our walk because sin has enslaved us and causes us to suffer and causes us to be a slave to it. And God is delivering his people right now from the bondage of sin. In chapter 3, verse 7, can I read that? The Lord said, then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings. And I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey. And he goes on to, to describe that land. God plans he will save and deliver his people. God is doing that today. We talk about the present, the past, the present, and the future tense of our salvation. God has delivered us already from the punishment of sin. In other words, the, the, the judgment that sin brings on every individual. God says the wages of sin is death. God has delivered us from the judgment of sin. We are no longer under condemnation, but we are set free from the judgment. Those who trust in Christ are set free from the judgment that is inevitable because of sin. That's that past tense deliverance that he, get, he, he, he has done for us. Well, it's not just past tense. In the present right now, God is delivering us from the power of sin in our lives. Right now, uh, the sin has a sway and a power over those who don't know Christ. But those who know Christ, sin is still trying to, trying to uh, put its influence over us. But God has given us victory or power over sin. We do not have to walk in sin. We do not have to remain under bondage to sin. Now, yes, we succumb to sin sometimes because of weakness or failure to obey God, but God has given us his Holy Spirit that we might have the power to overcome sin. And we have that right now. We have that right now. God does not want us to walk or continue in sin. So he delivers us right now, every day, giving us the power to overcome the battle with sin in our lives. That's an ongoing battle. I think last week I expressed that some people say they, they pray to God when they have sin that oppresses them, and it's particularly uh, addiction. Lord, uh, take the taste of alcohol out of my mouth. And and I don't think God works that way. I think what he does is give you the power to trust him, to walk in him, so that you have the power to resist the temptation or uh, uh, whatever it is. And, and that's, you, you got to realize you're going to have to, you're going to need that power again tomorrow when you wake up and the next day and the next day. That's why God, when Jesus taught us how to pray, he said, you should pray to God this way. Give us this day our daily bread. 
In other words, you're not praying, God, just wipe out all sin in my life so I never get tempted anymore. He's not working that way. As long as you are in this world, you're going to be subject to the temptations of this world, and you're going to have to fight that temptation, but he gives you the strength to overcome that. So you pray, Lord, today, I'm waking up today. Lord, I want to honor you today. Give me power to resist the temptation that comes my way today. And he'll give it to you. And he'll give it to you. Now, that's not easy. That's not easy. I would imagine that some people that's not here today because they've given in to temptation already. You've got to walk in the strength that he told you to walk in. You've got to come and get it. You gotta, it's just like me announcing that, hey, dinner is ready, and you got to come and get it. You got to come and get the nourishment that God has for you so you can battle in the fight that he has for you. It's not automatic. He's giving you something to do. Walk in him, and as you walk, as you walk in obedience to him, he strengthens you day by day for the day, for the battle that you're in. There's some battles you don't even know you're going to be in yet. And when you get to that, you're going to have to say, Lord, give me the strength this day to fight victoriously in the battle that I have right now. And God gives it to you. God gives you the strength. As you walk in obedience to him, he strengthens you to, to, to have that, that to, to win that battle. So that's the past sin. That's the present sin, and then this salvation in the future, God will deliver us from even the presence of sin. We talk about the penalty of sin, the power of sin, and now the presence. The penalty of sin is in the past. He's already given us victory over that. The power of sin is what we battle with in the present, and then in the future, he's going to give us total victory of the presence of sin. Oh, I'm looking forward to that. When I can come out of my dwelling place and not be combated with sin all around me. No matter where I am in heaven, there will be no sin. In the presence of God, we'll be totally separated from the presence of sin. We won't have temptation anymore. We won't have to deal with all the nonsense that we deal with now. But that ain't here yet. Now, what we need to know, it's coming, and we have encouragement that that's coming. That that is what God is going to deliver us to. Right now, he needs to deliver us from. And so, we, we, we see God doing that. Let me get to the fourth point today. In the lessons we learned from Exodus, God will punish those who oppress his people. I don't know about you, but I'm encouraged by that. I'm very much encouraged by that. When I see in the book of Exodus, I see the, the, uh, the leader of Egypt, Pharaoh, oppressing God's people, and God goes to battle with him. And it's like it's personal with God. You mess with my people, I'm going to come at you. That's what God is saying. That's what God is saying in Exodus. God is saying, look, I'm coming into your kingdom, Pharaoh, and I'm snatching my people out of your hand, and I'm going to smack you down. That's what God says to Pharaoh. And, and it's encouraging to me because I know that we have an oppressor, 
as a believer, our oppressor is Satan himself, and God is going to deliver us from that, and he's going to smack Satan down. We look forward to that. God will punish those who oppress his people. We see this in a couple ways. We see this in the person of Pharaoh and his army and his nation, that God takes his people from there and smacks all of them. How does he, how does he punish Pharaoh? Well, first of all, he shames them. Pharaoh loses all uh, uh, respect and control. He's one who's in charge of this nation. And as God goes through these plagues, the people of Egypt can see Pharaoh is not the one in charge here. God is. Pharaoh is trying to exert his control over Israel, and, and God is the one that's showing himself to be strong. Later on, when, when Israel comes and comes through uh, the sea, on, walk across the sea on dry land. Egypt and Pharaoh think that they can do the same, and, and God draws them into that sea, pulls the water back down on them, and totally destroys the Egyptian army, and Pharaoh included. We also see that in chapter 17, as the people of Israel leave Egypt, they come across another group. This is called the Amalekites. And the Malachites take advantage of Israel's weakness, and they attack Israel. And God announces there, and we can see this kind of reflected all throughout the Old Testament, that the Amalekites become the enemy of God because they attacked God's people in their weakness. And so this theme is, 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 is kind of laid out here in Exodus, and we see it being played out throughout all the Old Testament when you mess with God's people, you're going to get the fury, the anger of God against you. That's good to know. As a believer, that's good to know. Number five, God leads his people through human leaders and divine interactions. These are part of the lessons that we learn uh, from the book of Exodus. What do I mean by that? How does God lead his people out of this slavery, out of Egypt? Well, he uses human leaders. He brings in Moses and he brings in Aaron. You remember Moses gives the excuse. God calls Moses. Remember that, that scene at the burning bush that God announced to Moses that God is going to use him to, to, to bring out his people out of Egypt. And Moses uses all these excuses. God, I, I'm, I'm, not I'm not an eloquent speaker, and so I'm not the right guy. And, and God finally said, well, look, I, I, I made your speech. I made your mouth. I made your tongue. But I'm going to give to you your older brother, Aaron, and, and I'm going to appoint him to be the mouthpiece for you. And so he uses... Uh, uh, Moses in all of his inadequacies. Moses is basically saying, "Is is I'm not, I'm not the right kind of guy for this job. I'm not a charismatic leader. I can't grab the attention of the people in powerful, persuasive words and have them follow me." Notice God's response. He's basically saying, "That's okay. I don't need that." 
I'm not delivering them by your power and by your charisma. charisma. I'm going to deliver them by my power and my compelling word. So it's good to know that God uses human beings, but it's by his power, his power, that he delivers his people. It's good to know that he uses human beings because it gives us hope. He uses fallible people. Who was Moses? Moses was one who thought that he was all that in his young age and that he was destined to lead God's people. And he tried to do it in his own strength. Remember how he met the Egyptian and the Israelite who were arguing, and he settled that argument. Remember how he settled that argument? By his own power, by his own strength. He said, how dare you mess with one of my brothers? I'm going to take you out. And he killed the Egyptian. He said he buried him in the sand. The next day he found two, two of his people arguing amongst each other. And she said, hey, guys, you know, why are you arguing? And they turned on him. Well, who are you? Think you something? You think you some leader over us? What you going to do, kill me like you killed the Egyptian? Now word was out. And that little bit was enough to scare Moses off where he had to run. He, had to, he was in exile from there from that time on. He spent 40 years in the wilderness. The point is, he tried first through his own strength to be the great leader in his own power. God still used him. But God said to him, it's not your power that's going to make this thing happen. It's my power, and you're submitting yourself to me. I love sitting in on Sunday school class, the joint adult class, and, and uh, uh, the, the just, just talking about Moses as being the meekest of all men. That was God's assessment of him. God had done a, a change in his life now. He was no longer trying to do things under his power. He was ready to submit to God's power and let God do the delivering, let God do the leading. And so it's a great lesson uh, that we learn uh, from that. Now, how did God do it? I said that God leads his people through human leaders, but he also uses divine interactions. The divine interactions that I have in mind is the ten plagues that we see throughout Exodus. That God shows and displays his power through these ten plagues to show that he is the one that's by his mighty hand that is going to lead the people out. If you're in Exodus chapter 3, look at verse 19 and 20 with me. Exodus 3, verse 19 and 20. God is speaking with Moses when he says this, but I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless compelled by a mighty hand. So I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all the wonders that I will do in it. After that, he will let you go. See what God says? He says, Moses, you've been giving me all these excuses why you're not the right man for the job. But it ain't you. It's not your power that's going to do it. I am going to show my hand and bring them out by that. If you keep on that same thought, chapter 5, verse 22. Then Moses turned to the Lord and said, oh, Lord. Why have you done evil to this people? Why did you ever send me? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done evil to this people, and you have not delivered your people at all. 
Remember, this was Moses' response because after he went in, the, he, he, he did what God said, marched forward right to uh, Pharaoh's face and told Pharaoh what God said, you know, set my people free. And Pharaoh's like, hmm, y'all got time to waste, huh? Let, 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 me, let me increase your burden a little bit more. Since you've got all of this time on your hand, you're going to give me commands now. Let me show you what I can do. And so he, he, he increased the burden on, on, on God's people, and Moses was discouraged. He went back to God and said, well, God, I thought you told me, you, you called me to deliver these people. And I've done what you said, and it didn't happen. God is going to do through through human leaders, but he's going to through, do it through his extraordinary power. Now look with me in chapter 6, verse 1, as we continue that same thought. It says, but the Lord said to Moses, now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh. For with a strong hand he will send them out, and with a strong hand he will drive them out of his land. Number six, God delivers his people by means of the blood sacrifice of his son, Jesus Christ. Now, I know what you say. Where do we see Jesus in Exodus? Say, Pastor, I've read all 40 chapters, and I didn't see the name of Jesus once. What are you talking about? How is Jesus now suddenly interjected into Exodus? Well, we know all of the word of God is centered on the work that God is going to do, and this work is to be done through his son. So in what way does Exodus point us to the Lord Jesus Christ? Very simply, in Exodus chapter 12, we have an event called the Passover lamb. Choir sang a song this morning, Behold the Lamb. We sing a lot with those titles. Look at who Jesus is. He's called the Lamb. The Passover Lamb is a clear picture of the Lord Jesus Christ. And in fact, it's such a clear picture, you cannot point to anyone else that is described in this Passover Lamb other than the Lord Jesus Christ. Let me tell you why. You understand that God told he told Moses that he was going to do one great last plague to Egypt. And that is he was going to kill every firstborn of every household throughout all the land, whether of Israel or of Egypt. He was going to kill the firstborn. Unless, he says, you show faith in me and take a lamb and kill it and take the blood and put that blood over the post, over the door and on the sides of the door. And he says this, when my death angel comes to visit death on that household, when he sees the blood, he will pass over. Now, who can that apply to? Who does that best point to other than the person Jesus Christ. All the prophets understood it. The New Testament even understood it. John the Baptist says of Jesus, Behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. It's sin that brings God's judgment on us. It's the blood of Christ that God looks on in each person's life to see if their trust in Jesus to be accounted to them for righteousness 
And when he sees that trust in Jesus, in his blood, in other words, his blood applied in their life, he passes over his judgment. Why? Because of the Passover lamb, Jesus Christ. All of Exodus then is pointing to this great person, Jesus Christ. It is, it is Jesus who provides the grace, who provi provides uh, uh, that which takes away God's judgment from the household. It points to Jesus. It's by Jesus that God delivers then his people from their sin. Number seven, God is supreme. Here's the lesson that we learned from Exodus. God is supreme above all gods. In case you're writing it down, let me start. And I'll, re I'll restate each one. Number one, God has not forsaken or abandoned his people. God has not forsaken or abandoned his people. Number two, God understands and empathizes with the sufferings and hardships you can rewrite that and abbreviate however you want. Number three, God will save his people. Number four, God will punish those who oppress his people. Number five, God leads his people through human leaders and divine interactions. Number six, God delivers his people by means of the blood sacrifice of his son, Jesus Christ. And number seven, God is supreme above all gods. The great message in Exodus. You see, there's a great battle that goes on in Exodus. And that is the battle that God uses to show that he is supreme above all others. When we look at the 10 plagues in Exodus, we see that they battle something in Egypt, and they are battling what Egypt holds high. For one, they, they hold the gods of Egypt very high, the land of Egypt, the Nile River itself is turned into blood. God is showing he, has, he, he is supreme over any and all things that Egypt might hold and esteem highly. He is God above all gods. It's interestingly shown in the first battle that Moses and Aaron have with Pharaoh. When they go and tell, tell Pharaoh what God is going to do, and uh, um, you know Moses before in preparing for this said, well, God, what if he doesn't believe us? What should we do? And God told him several things to do. And one, one thing he was to do is to take the rod that was in his hand and put it down. It was going to turn into a serpent. That would be an amazing thing. But Pharaoh wasn't too impressed. And he told his, his counselors, his wise men, to, to, to take their rods. And, and they put their rods down. They turned into serpents as well. And so you have the, the, the rods of, of, of Pharaoh's men and then Moses' rod. But the Bible tells us that Moses' rod that had turned to a serpent ate, <laughs> defeated, crushed, destroyed all the other rods that had turned into serpent. Now that would have been something to see. <laughs> that would have been something to see. I was watching an old-time movie the other day of, of Godzilla. 
and Godzilla, and I don't even know what it's about, but it's Godzilla king of all the monsters. <laughs> Love to see how Godzilla battles. You know, it's, it's just a fun thing, right? Um, but you, you see it, and what they're trying to show you is there's nobody. There's nobody like Godzilla. <laughs> but in a real sense, not fairy tale land, but in a real sense, God is showing himself to be superior to all others who will call themselves God. And he's showing that in a real way. He wants you and I to know today, God is above all other gods. You know, I think in America, the, the thing that we count most as God, when I think about it, the things that we count most as God is two things. One is our government. We want our government to solve all of our problems. And we actually vote people in with that thought and that idea. What are you going to do for me to solve my problems, to make my life easier? And even when you ask that question, doesn't it sound like you're relying on them as God? God never intended for us to rely on anyone or anything other than himself. The other thing that I think in our culture today that we rely on as God, because, you know, we, we, we under this notion that we don't really have idols in front of us, but we do. They just look differently. The biggest idol that we have in America is that idol on our bathroom wall. When we look into the mirror, it's ourselves. We're told that you can do anything that you can do, that you can, do, you can think of, you can imagine, you can do. If you want to change from being a man to a woman, you can do that. Anything you can imagine. You see, what we do in our culture is we make ourselves God. To me, that's such a pitiful state. I do not want to live in a place where I'm the greatest of all. I want somebody greater than me, holier than me, more righteous than me, more powerful than me, been around longer than me, and wiser than me. And I can trust and depend on the fact the one to whose existence I owe. That is God. God is showing himself to be supreme above all. And he's saying, you're gonna, when you begin to worship me and acknowledge me for who I am, then you will begin to live and to have real life. Who is your God? Who are you trusting in? Who are you depending on? No wonder we're so distraught in our culture today. No wonder we're so frustrated and disappointed, and then we blame everything and everyone else. Make God your God, the God Almighty. Not the God some mighty, but Almighty, who's supreme over all, over everything. He's proven himself to be that, and he shows that in, 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 in great ways throughout the book of Exodus. Number eight, God delivers, directs, and instructs his people 
for the purpose of serving and worshiping him. When God brings them out of Egypt, we come across Exodus chapter 20 and on, and we spend a lot of time on all those other chapters. And what we see is the instruction, the teaching God has for his people. We can summarize that in chapter 20 looking at the Ten Commandments. God, he delivers them, his people. Now he directs them and instructs them for this purpose to walk in obedience to him. You know why you're here today? You know why you're listening to God's word today? It's so that you can set your heart to obey God. Not just so that you can read and understand God's word, but the purpose of reading and understanding God's word is that you might walk with him in obedience and in harmony with him, in submission to him. The purpose of coming to church, the purpose is that you might have fellowship with him. You might walk in obedience to him. You might do what he asks you to do. God is directing you to serve and to worship him. In other words, say it this way. There's a purpose in coming to church. The, the, the church isn't the goal. It's a means to the goal. It's something you get on the way to doing what God wants you to do. The purpose here is to tell you God's truth, to open your eyes to what God is saying so that you can live in obedience and do what God says. God is instructing his people so that they can learn to live in obedience to him. So all those chapters that give us all these details of of the tabernacle and the, the, the items in that tabernacle that they were to make is so that they can rightly worship God. So that you hear from God's word is explained so that you know how to obey God. Matthew 22, 37, Jesus summed up the Ten Commandments. In fact, he summed up all the commandments in all the Old Testament. He, he did that because somebody asked him a question. They said, Jesus, all right, we understand you're a great teacher. Sum it all up for us. Take all of the Old Testament and sum it up. What's the greatest commandment? Jesus said, no problem. I'll do that for you. Here's the greatest commandment. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart. And then he said the second one is connected to it. Love your neighbor as yourself. He said, that summarizes all that God requires in his law. What is he saying? The law is given for us to obey God, to live the way he's calling us to live. In other words, see, what what was happening on Jesus' day, he had all these questions coming from all of these these people who who didn't believe God, who, who didn't like him and hated him and tried to trick him into different things, they majored on understanding what the law taught. And they tried to to trip Jesus in their question about the law, saying, hey, if he answered this question wrong, or if he doesn't give a clear answer to this, and it's not right, we can trap him and say, no, don't listen to him. He don't know what he's talking about. 
they were experts at the law. They think, thought they understood all the detail of the law, and they patted themselves on the back for understanding what they thought the law said. Jesus said, you missed the whole point. The purpose of the law is not that you have some great understanding of the law. In other words, the purpose of it is not for you to pat yourself on the back and say how much I've read it and how well I understand it. The purpose of the law is you do it. That you actually do what God asked you to do. So look, when you come to him and you say, yeah, I know, I can explain all what that means. God ain't impressed with that. God is impressed with you walking, with you doing, with you obeying him. How do you show that obedience? Jesus said, love the Lord your God with all your heart. And love your neighbor as yourself. That, that also sums up what the law show points out to us. None of us are there. None of us can brag and say, ha, 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 I love God the absolute most of anybody everywhere. Really? You have a weird understanding of what it means to love God. Because it means to obey and submit to him. And Jesus would have said to those people that day, you say you love God, but you want to kill me. Something ain't right. You love God, but you totally reject me. Doesn't match. And you violate the second, second commandment <clears throat> or the second summary of that commandment at the same time when it says, love your neighbor as yourself. How can you hate Jesus and say you love God and say you've loved your neighbor? The purpose isn't to show how much we know the purpose is to walk in obedience. God gave instruction to his people that they might live the way he wants them to live. If you leave church today and you're still guided by your own sin and your life is patterned in that same way, you haven't helped yourself one bit by learning more of the word of God today. But if your learning of the word of God causes you to submit humbly before him and cry out to God for his power, for his help, for his uh, working in your life, then you're fulfilling what God wants you to do. And you find that as you trust in him and in, Lord, in his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Number nine. Exodus teaches us this. God wants his people to reflect and remember his deeds and worship him for his deliverance. How do we see this in Exodus? God wants his people to remember what he's done for them and to worship him for what he's done. One of the areas we see this is in chapter 12 when he talks about this Passover and the practice that he wants them to do perpetually. In fact, if you turn to chapter 12, verse 40, let's read that. Exodus chapter 12, verse 40 through 42. 
it answers the question that I had earlier. It says this, the time that the people of Israel lived in Egypt was 430 years. At the end of 430 years, on that very day, all the hosts of the Lord went out from the land of Egypt. It was a night of watching by the Lord to bring them out of the land of Egypt. So this same night is a night of watch, watching kept to the Lord by all the people of Israel throughout their generations. He says, 43, 430 years since I brought you down into Egypt, now I'm releasing you from it. I want you to remember this day. Why? So you'll be, have a humble spirit to worship and serve me. Said he wants his people to reflect on what he's done so that might cause them to worship and serve him. So as you come to church today, God is calling you to reflect on what he's done in your life, what he's delivered you from and what he's delivered you to so that you might be steadfast in your service and worship to him. He wants you to remember. That's one of the reasons why we come on Sunday. On Sunday, we remember that great event of Jesus being raised from the dead so that we, would, might, we might have power over sin. We come and celebrate every Sunday what Jesus has done for us so we don't forget, so that we don't take for granted, and so that we're reminded as a new week begins that God is a God that delivers us and I owe my life to him and I have much to be thankful for what he has done. So if you didn't understand anything here that's been said today, you ought to understand that I'm going to remember what God did for me and have a grateful heart. I'm going to rehearse that over and over again. I'm going to remind myself of that. The New Testament talks about singing to ourselves in songs that we might keep it fresh in our mind what God has done for me, speaking it to others that we might remind them as we remind ourselves what God has done for me. You ever do something for somebody and then not show any thanks or soon will quickly forget what you've done. <laughs> God wants us to rehearse, remember, reflect on the thing that he has done for us and never forget it. And the number 10 goes right along with it. God instructs his people to worship him. We see the from chapter 20 all the way through 40, we see all kinds of instructions for how they were to make the tabernacle, how they were to build it. And all this, the whole point is, this is how you worship me. Main point under here, we don't just worship God any old way. We don't just, I've heard people say this in church, just come to God as you please. No. God says, let's, let's do all things, it's 1 Corinthians 14, 40, let's do all things decently and in order. In other words, he has instruction for how we come to him, instruction for how we, we worship him. And he says, listen to the instructions that I've given you and walk in obedience to that. 
So God takes a lot of care in Exodus to give that message to his people. And the message to us is God cares about our worship. Did you know your every thought is either worship to God or something that's displeasing to God? So you practice worship in everything you do. When you look at the person next to you, you either have a forgiving, pleasing thought or condemning negative thought. You're worshiping in how you think of everything that you do. God gives instruction to his people. And if you look closely at those instructions, you'll see they're to remind themselves of what God has done for them. So if you look at the person next to you and you're reminded of a sinner, <laughs> then remind yourself you were once a sinner that God delivered and saved you. In fact, you'll see something in the law when he instructs his people. He says, never look down on a person who's a foreigner, who comes into your land, because you were once a foreigner yourself. In other words, he's saying, you were a low-down, dirty slave once, and I delivered you, so never look down on another person like that. But remember where I brought you from and remember the one who brought you from that and honor him and worship and serve him. But he tells us how to worship him, how to serve him, gives them details. And I think we come in church um, each Sunday that we might learn how we live our lives to glorify God. I have another set of messages, but. Uh, uh, that we get from Exodus. The first set I said there are messages to God's people. The second set are messages to all people, but they reflect the same points that I just mentioned. God is revealing himself and showing how he treats his people. In other words, the way God treated Israel and how he delivered them was to be a message to the world that they might see how great and gracious God is. They might be drawn to God. So the whole message to the world, those who don't know Christ, who are looking at Exodus, is to look at this and marvel at this great God who comes and communes and deals and interacts with his people to where he delivers them from slavery, draws them to the land that he's bringing them to, and instructs them in how to live in obedience to him and worship him. That's what God is doing to you Today. Father, we thank you uh, for your word today. We thank you for this review in what Exodus presents to us. And we pray, Lord, that we will reflect on your truth, that in it we'll see the great work that you have done with your people. We might see the Lord Jesus Christ pictured as the one who's been slain to pay for our sins. We might see the instructions you give for us in how to live a life that brings glory to you. And we come regularly, Lord, to, to be guided by your instruction, by your direction. We recognize, Lord, that you show that direction to your people in Exodus through a pillar of fire and a pillar of cloud that directed them daily. Now today, Lord, you give us your Holy Spirit and your word to guide each step that you'd have us to take. We see how your people had to work together there to prepare themselves for worship and we recognize Lord that now you called us to not be isolated from each other but to work together 
in worshiping you and being connected to one another. We marvel, Lord, at what a wicked people, people who didn't show gratitude after you brought them out of Egypt. We marvel at your grace and we connect with that because, Lord, we fall short of your glory and yet your son has paid the price for our sins. Not on our perfection or our doing, but it's your grace that's been poured out to us and we want to say thank you for that. Lord, I pray that we would, as we reflect and as we remember what you are doing in our lives, that will bring that attitude of gratitude in our hearts, service, surrender, obedience, submission to you, acknowledging the Lord Jesus Christ and put our trust in him. We pray this for all who hear your word today. In Jesus' name we pray.